From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm your host, Amanda Icone. Depending on where you live in the United States, somewhere between one in every 10 people and one in every five is black. But that's not the case when you look at the racial demographics of certified public accountants. That's just 1%. And their numbers have barely budged in decades. Our guests today say that the profession's exclusion of black accountants is no coincidence. CPA training requirements that may on the surface seem neutral to race actually have the consequence of discouraging and in some cases outright preventing black accountants from obtaining their CPA license. That, as well as a history of racism in the profession, explains a large part of accounting's continuing lack of diversity. To learn more, we spoke to Teresa Hammond, an accounting professor at San Francisco State University, and Shannon Nash, the chair of the newly founded National Society of Black CPAs. Shannon, who is black, is an experienced executive based in the Bay Area and has been working in tax and finance for more than 20 years. Teresa, who is white, has done extensive research into the causes of racial disparities in accounting. We started off by asking Shannon how diversity in accounting compares with other licensed, skilled professions. So I'm also an attorney, and what I will say to you, and I don't, and I don't profess to know other professions, but I, I, I do know that profession quite a bit. And, um, you know, the numbers are higher when you look at the number of um, African-American attorneys. That's not to say that I also believe that that's a profession that has also kind of reached that uh, parity from a demographic standpoint, because it's still below um, our numbers in the overall population. But I think there's a lot of factors that go into why you may see more African-American attorneys as a percentage of all attorneys, if you will. Um, And that has a lot to do with... um, I think how the profession is marketed um, to, to younger kids, how you see it in society, what you see about it in society. Um, you know, Teresa and I have talked before and I, was, and I think I made the comment about there's so many legal shows from Law and Order to so many movies about lo- lawyers. So, you know, so it's, it's marketed. It's part of kind of the, the DNA of what like a kid would see as what's possible. Um, and I think the accounting profession has a long way to go in terms of marketing itself as like a viable brand. I think that there is somewhat of a, um, a stereotype of what an accountant does. And one of the things we're aiming to do is show the, the significant diversity of what we all as, a, as CPAs do, which is not just go into public accounting. I think that is a great career path and a lot of people do it, but there's a lot of other career paths of, of folks that are CPAs that I think you know, maybe the general public just doesn't even know um, is an option. And certainly little kids don't see that. Yeah, I know. I think that marketing issue is something that the profession is trying to chip away at. Um, And I know the in terms of the pure numbers of black accountants, the total numbers have grown over the decades. But as a percentage of the profession, they really hasn't budged in basically 50 years. Uh, Teresa, I wonder if you can jump in here, how did we get here? How did we get stuck at 1%? Absolutely. I'd like to underscore what Shannon said and uh, reiterate that I'm certain that it's less than 1% of CPAs are African-American. Unfortunately, unlike in law, we don't really have very good data in the profession, but this data that the AICPA does collect over over surveys the African-American-owned firms. So the data that they get 
includes the major firms, a sampling of the medium-sized firms, and then almost all the Black-owned firms are surveyed. And so when you see the numbers of African-American CPAs, of course, their numbers are even higher than they should be. And yet we, uh, and yet it's still they, uh, it's still less than one percent of CPAs even in the AICPA data, and in law firms, the National Association for Law Placement gathers the data per firm. If you want to go work for Ropes and Gray in Boston, you can look online, see how many female partners they have, how many black partners they have, how many African American associates they have. You can't do that in accounting. There's no way to get the data for the individual firms in accounting too. So I think that's a huge problem. And historically, if an African American wanted to become a doctor or a lawyer, there were African-American schools, medical schools and law schools. There's Howard, there's Meharry. They've been around forever. There were African-American lawyers and doctors in the black communities. And so you would go perhaps to an African-American doctor. You would see an African-American lawyer. They would be, uh, uh, along with African-American educators and African-American religious leaders of all, you know, of various faiths, those would be the major professions that African-Americans would see, young African-Americans would see. CPAs were required for publicly traded companies. Publicly traded companies have been dominated by white men throughout the history of the United States. To be to become a CPA, you had to work for a CPA, you had to meet an experience requirement. And until the 1960s, none of the big accounting firms would hire African-Americans, period. None of the big four, at the time of the big eight, they would not hire African-Americans until the late 1960s. And only when there were lawsuits against brought by the Human Rights Commission of New York, did the uh, major firms start hiring African-Americans. You combine that experience requirement that's controlled by a majority white profession and the lack of African-American access to capital that meant that there weren't enough large African-American owned businesses to require being audited by a public accountant. It just resulted in a complete exclusion from this particular division of the profession. Almost all, I interviewed 35 of the first 100 African-American CPAs in the United States. Uh, there were only 100 African-American CPAs by 1965. That was one in 1,000 at the time. And almost all of them either worked for the government or worked as educators. Like very, very few, with the exception of Chicago, basically, very, very few African-Americans had enough local Black-owned businesses to have a full-time job uh, creating the kinds of tax and financial statement reports that the businesses needed. So some of it was demand-driven, the lack of demand specifically for Black accountants by the Black business community, but some of it was also the work requirements. Talk about that in a little bit more detail, Teresa. What do you mean by the work requirements? The um, And by demand, I'd like to really make clear that it's because African-Americans were excluded from the mainstream of the business community. Uh, it was very difficult for African-Americans to get loans for their businesses. It was very difficult to get insurance and things like that. So it's not just that black businesses didn't hire African-American sure. CPAs. Right. So the one of the unusual things about the accounting profession is that you not only have to get an education, the educational requirements have changed over time, but now it's, you know, basically 150-hour requirement is in place across the United States. But, you know, even in the time that you didn't need a college degree to become a CPA, there are African-Americans who had MBAs from, uh, from New York University or from Columbia University who couldn't become CPAs at the time because they couldn't meet the experience experience requirement. So of the three requirements, education, the exam, and the experience requirement, the experience requirement was by far the biggest barrier to becoming a CPA. 
because white-owned firms would not hire African-Americans until the late 60s, in the 1940s, many aspiring African-American CPAs would move either to Chicago or to Ohio to work for one of the few African-Americans who had become CPAs in the United States. There was Jesse Bladen in Atlanta. There was Mary Washington in Chicago. There was uh, Richard Austin in Detroit. And people would literally move to those cities because that was the only place that they could find someone who would hire them and give them the experience. Until the 1950s, the only white Americans who hired African Americans were Jewish. And there were a few of the very first black CPAs who were hired by Jewish firms, small Jewish firms, and they were uh, given the experience requirement that way. And then those African-American CPAs went on to train other African-American CPAs. So of the first 127 were in Chicago. And that was principally because of the pathways that were um, created by Mary Washington for them to get the experience requirement. I want to fast forward to 2020. I mean, we just kind of um, cruise through the, you know, the first half of the 20th century. What about the 21st century? We hear a lot of reasons why black students don't pursue accounting. Shannon, you mentioned one of them earlier, that the lack of marketing, the lack of popular culture appeal. Um, or, or we also hear a lot of reasons why they choose to skip the CPA and head straight to work in corporate America. But I wonder why is that? Is, is this requirement to get a few years of work under their belt still a barrier that disproportionately hurts Black accountants today? It, it is definitely um, an issue. And I think that a lot of people are starting to, to not only um, recognize it, um, but want to do something about it. So I, wanna, I, I also want to um, point out to you that I'm, um, I just joined the uh, working group for the Center for Audit Quality. And I'll take a, a little bit step back about that. So this working group is focusing on CPA licensure, accessibility, and affordability. Um, and one of the things, especially with COVID, that we will be looking at um, is reexamining how the additional 30 hours needed to obtain the CPA license can be made more cost-effective and flexible. And for example, that would be through things like internships or apprenticeship models that have certainly worked in the legal profession. Um, more cost-effective ways to get these 30 hours, including online education, which we're seeing um, definitely is working during COVID and is, is really the future that is here today, that's not 10 years away from now. So looking at things like that to make the 30 hours less of a barrier um, and more of something that not only is obtainable, but is something that um, really is um, something that helps promote the profession. I'm a huge personal proponent of apprenticeships and internships because they are a way for you to not only really get real world experience, a lot of times those are paid. And so it also gives um, that opportunity to be earning in your profession while you're learning your profession. Um, So I'm a big proponent of that. Now, this is the beginning stages of all this. It's not going to happen overnight. going to take years. But that being said, I'm very excited about being part of the CAQ working group that is going to really come up with proposals to um, address this and hopefully really move the needle um, because I do think that the 30 hours in particular um, requirement have a disproportionate impact on um, underserved communities. Break that down for me, Shannon. Why why is that? I mean, it it seems like a common sense, oh, you should work for a few years or why why is that still 
a barrier. Well, again, so when you compare it to what you get for other professions, when you compare it to starting salaries at other professions, it's really difficult after you have, um, you know, kind of finished your undergraduate degree to then take on more debt, um, not make any money, and, um, you know, still not um, really be in a profession, if you will. And so it has been problematic. Um, and the, the impact on the number of folks who want to take the CPA exam or who just decide to do something else with a career in finance or accounting is, is, is big. I think the data is there. There are plenty of people I know get to that decision tree and decide to get the MBA, for example, because they can take that MBA and you can look at the starting salaries for MBAs um, and that cause benefit analysis seems to to ferret out a little bit you know more for them. I think we have a lot of work to do there to make this thirty hours be more meaningful, if you will, from the cost benefit analysis for candidates that are looking at the CPA as a viable option and if you look at the economic disparities both historically and currently right the if you hold uh, salaries or income constant between African Americans and white Americans you'll find that African Americans have depending on the on the survey between one tenth to one fifteenth the wealth that a white American has and so staying in school that extra year is a big deal for most African American students because they because if you if you are graduating after four years from from college and you see you can get a job at Google or at the Gap or at Chevron I'm talking about Bay Area companies and you get paid seventy five thousand dollars a year or you can stay for one more year, get your master's degree, paying a higher tuition to get those extra 30 hours, and then get a job at one of the accounting firms, and those firms are paying you $65,000 a year. It's a very tough decision if you don't have the family back backstop of wealth to say, get, you know, listen, it's going to be a good idea for your long-term career to get that master's in accounting and to get the CPA, because it's very hard to think long-term when you're staring down huge student loans. So that's the 30 hours. And then it varies by state whether you need one to three years experience. And a lot of times, so I taught in Boston for 15 years, and now I teach in San Francisco, and I've been here for over a decade as well. So I've seen the um, the hiring community in both areas. And in Boston, a lot of my students went to work in New York as well. Very few of the big firms have a lot of black partners and black managers. When the students go to Clorox or they go to Kaiser, Permanente in the Bay Area, and they see African-American vice presidents, and they see African-American managers, and then they go to one of the big four, and the highest ranking African-American they meet as a manager, they think, do I really want to kill myself for three more years for less pay, and I have to take this exam? I know I'm going to have to work 80 hours a week, because if, if they're in NABA, they talk to their friends, and they know what their experiences are like. I have to kill myself working 80 hours a week and take this exam in my what free time that I don't even know if I have. And we're, and I don't see a future for myself here because I don't see anyone who looks like me who's at the higher levels of the firm. That's a big that I, that's a, a a big visibility problem to the students. They see that and they think if I go to Kaiser, I could be a vice president. I see two vice presidents in finance right Today, today, just you know, like on my on my office visit, I, I met those people. In, in addition to lots of other directors, I actually um, want to piggyback on that um, on that Clorox story. What what in addition to they them seeing them, they see a pathway because a lot of these companies do have programs where they will 
help you get your MBA, for example. And that is, that is, that is promoted. And so you see, I can get this education. I can still make a living. Um, and the people I'm looking at were able to move up the corporate ladder, if you will, with that as their, as their background. So when you're comparing those two options, it's kind of, it's a very difficult choice, but it's not that difficult. And that's why you see a number of folks, specifically if they're not in public accounting, will have MBAs as their, as their background for sure. The AICPA and the National Association of State Boards of Accountancy are currently working on an overhaul of the CPA exam and the academic curriculum that feeds into that. All of those changes are really focused on skills, focused on being a tech-savvy accountant. Would those changes in and of itself have any impact on the pipeline, on the ultimate complexion of the profession? I mean, because they're not addressing the, the 30 extra hours. They're not addressing the requirement for several years of work experience after graduation. And so I wonder what your thoughts are about that project and, and how it might impact the diversity of the profession. Part of the CPA evolution, you know, is looking at um, the 30 hour requirement. That is part of it. The other part of it that I think you are, you're focusing on is just the, the, what the CPA of the future will look like and the emphasis on um, having kind of a tech um, approach and data analytics. And what I will say is that, um, I, so I work in tech and I think it's that spot on. I think the future will require different skill sets than the CPAs that were trained in the past. Certainly when I, I was trained, you know, in the early 90s, I think those are different skill sets and, and we need to be making sure we're preparing, right, the candidates now for those skill sets. One of the things that um, our organization, National Society of Black Certified Public Accountants, is a proponent of is having accounting including, included in STEM. So that from a pipeline standpoint, um, lots of school districts right now are focusing on STEM and what's including in STEM and what those classes are. And we would like to see kind of accounting and finance classes included in that kind of um, toolkit, if you will, that school districts have. What I will tell you personally is that my interest in accounting completely um, stemmed, no pun intended, from an accounting teacher when I was in high school, who's thought, who's, who I think I took accounting in 10th and 11th grade, was offered in my school, who thought, you're really good at this. I knew I wanted to go to law school, so I thought, why would I even want to try accounting? But I, I was really interested in it. She, um, she was like a mentor to me, and she basically helps me understand what a career in accounting would look like for me. So that was something I was taught like in the 10th grade. And so in my summers, I got a job working for an accountant doing bookkeeping. And then it led into me wanting to major in accounting, et cetera. And so that's the kind of pipeline um, changes that can happen when accounting is included in like a STEM curriculum. And that's the type of things that I think would be specifically helpful in underserved communities. I'm so glad Shannon said that because one of the things that uh, I do in the Bay Area is I'm a member of the board of the Accounting Career Awareness Program. And with the Accounting Career Awareness Program, we're trying to raise the visibility of accounting among high school students. It's a program started by the National Association of Black Accountants in the Bay Area. We're in our 31st year. And one of the things that we do is we visit high schools And before COVID, we were going once a month to Oakland High School, and we would have between 50 and 60 students, mostly Black and Latino, 
who would come and we would teach them about accounting. We would do exercises together. We're still doing it a little bit virtually. We're doing some virtually. It's not as much fun as it is in person. But we're just trying to make raise their awareness of the profession. If you look at uh, educational scores, especially when it comes to ma- math in high school, a lot of African-American students are not excelling at math and they're not seeing the purpose of math except for when it comes to STEM. And so honestly, when we go in and we talk about, oh, let's let's count these Lego bricks and make sure they match the inventory worksheet and let's count these, you know, this candy and then you can eat it when we're done. And then, you know, that, this kind of thing that we do with high school students. They see that the math involved in accounting, honestly, is not that complex and it shouldn't be such an intimidating career. And it's actually kind of fun in the in terms of it isn't just crunching numbers, but understanding things and explaining it to other people and helping businesses make decisions. We do this business case with them where they have to make a product and figure out the cost of the product and that kind of thing. And this is the kind of program that it just needs to occur. I mean, there, there's, I think, 16 ACAPs across the country, and it just needs to be more ubiquitous. And one thing I found that was really interesting about it is we started out because we have 50 or 60 students, we have anywhere from 10 to 20 volunteers who come every time so that each student gets to work with a professional. And our first re- outreach for young professionals was through the affinity groups at the um, major accounting firms, uh, including the medium-sized accounting firms in the Bay Area. But um, So they sent it to the Latino and African-American networks. And it's wonderful to see the high school students see someone who looks like them, who is just a few years older than they are, who is in this profession. It's just super inspiring. The students will be disappointed if one particular volunteer doesn't come the next month because he's busy with an audit or whatever. It's just that part's wonderful. But the other thing I think is so wonderful, and I say this as a white person myself, is how many white people in the firms are volunteering to come to the schools and working with the students because uh, there are a number of people who do think it's worth their time, you know, across races to help these young people and they really want to make a difference in their lives. And so I, I think that the solution to this is raising the visibility of the profession. We might not get a television program, but we can do more outreach to high school students and make them aware of it. Because if you think about accounting, it tends to be a lot of people, if they didn't have it in high school, and it's not common in a high school curriculum, a lot of people, oh, they had an aunt who was an accountant or a grandfather who was an accountant. And that just doesn't happen in the African-American community because 40 years ago, it was almost impossible to get a job in a CPA firm. And so, you know, that that has long, that, those, that discrimination, that systemic racism that is built into the profession has long, long lasting effects that we're seeing today. And we have to, we have to do something proactive to change that. I wanted to ask, you know, following up on that, Teresa, what else can be done? What else needs to change? We've talked about the marketing of the profession, the visibility of the profession. I mean, these are such long-standing, deep-rooted issues. And I I just wonder what your thoughts are um, on what else can help move that needle. Shannon, this is something your your organization's hyper-focused on. (laughs) What What are your thoughts? I mean, what really has to change here? One of the best things that's happened is the PhD project, which was started by the KPMG Foundation, but it is now supported by 
major corporations and include and the AICPA and the American Accounting Association, and that provides uh, financial uh, scholarships and the networking opportunities for African American, Latino, and Native American doctoral students in all business fields. But it started in accounting. That has quintupled the number of African-American, Latino, and Native American professors in the business school classroom in the past 25 years. By this, just what Shannon said, you have a teacher who either is enthusiastic, you don't have to be a black professor to inspire a black student, but uh, African-American student has automatically got an advantage in terms of connecting with a student. And so to increase the number of black faculty, I think is huge. Another thing is that the firms have to, I think, start reporting the numbers of at all ranks because that will make them take it more seriously. We're accountants. The things that we count, we pay attention to. Uh, one of the problems with account public accounting, I think, is that it's client-facing. So firms are so afraid of what their clients think that they uh, tend to a lot more conformity than another organization might. Uh, they, they, want, they don't want anyone to make a bad impression on a client, and so they try to hire as uh, monochromatic and historically uh, uh, new hires as they can. And currently, you have to meet a certain professional demeanor that they expect, and, and it becomes very narrow, yeah. So I think that if the firms cared about it, kept track of it, and also made it a priority, uh, that would make a big difference. Yeah, I agree with what Teresa said. Look, we, we're, we're focusing on, our organization is focusing on addressing this from a pipeline standpoint, helping candidates um, be able to um, afford studying. We didn't even get into just how much it costs to study for the CPA exam, all of the prep costs, et cetera. So helping our candidates not only get the extra 30 hours that they need and being able to afford that um, in terms of education, but also then being able to afford studying for the CPA exam, we're focused on that helping them then get um, connected with um, black firms, with opportunities um, in corporate, in government. So we're focused on that. And then finally, we're focused on having our members who are qualified black CPAs um, get, get positions on boards, service on committees um, with some of our esteemed um, um, pr uh, professional associations like the AICPA, really being visible out there in the marketplaces, Black CPAs is, is where we're focusing um, our efforts as well. That was Shannon Nash, the chair of the National Society of Black CPAs, and Teresa Hammond, an accounting professor at San Francisco State University. You can find up-to-the-minute news on the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. And share your thoughts with us on Twitter. We use the handle at tax. That's at T-A-X. Talking Tax is produced by Amanda Icone and David Schultz. Kathy Larson is our editor. Special help came today from Lisa Hellum. That's it for this week's edition. From Washington, I'm Amanda Icone. Thanks for listening. The killers of Berta Caceres had every reason to believe they'd get away with murder. Her work as an environmental activist won her the admiration of celebrities in California, politicians in Washington, and the indigenous communities she worked alongside in Honduras. It also earned her powerful enemies. On a new podcast from Bloomberg Green, Blood River follows a four-year quest to find Berta Caceres' killers. Join journalist Monty Real and the team from Bloomberg Green 
as they untangle false leads and mishandled evidence, taking listeners deep into a sector of international development that's marked by high-level corruption and rampant violence. Blood River debuts Monday, July 27th on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. <laughs>